welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. It is just so lovely to be back with you all. Uh, September always feels like the start of a new year and um, uh, I hope you all had great holidays. Uh, Sammy and I uh, are so grateful for this church. We miss you all very much when we're away and um, you know many of our dearest friends are in this community, many of the people that we Look up to and that teach us and show us what Jesus looks like are in this church. And one of the things I love is that there is a genuine passion uh, in this church for Jesus and a hunger to learn. And as a result, a very surprising thing has happened, uh, which is that over recent months, I've had several people in Emmaus come to me and say, Pete, would you give us some teaching? about money and giving. And I I almost fell over because in most churches, they are praying that the pastor never, ever talks about money or giving. And so I am going to oblige today. And it is, of course, vital because money affects us all deeply and daily. The Bible has 2,350 references to Uh, money and possessions. We live in one of the wealthiest parts of the country at one of the most materialistic times in world history. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that we're immune uh, from all of that just because we're Christians. I'm told the most common cause of marital uh, rows is money. And this is a constant challenge in my own life. I I freely admit there have been times I've lain awake in bed at night worrying about money. I think about when I was a young man in my 20s, you know, newly married. And and back then, Sammy and I just came to the conclusion we're never going to be able to afford to buy a house or any of that stuff. Um, Amazingly, God's helped us to, but it seemed utterly impossible. I didn't know how I was going to provide for my new wife. And then fast forward and kids came along somehow or other. Um, If you want to know how, ask our new youth worker. And, um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, uh, then suddenly I had this great sense of responsibility. Oh, I've got to provide, not just for me and Sammy, but now for these two little humans. And now I'm a fully-fledged, middle-aged fart. And uh, I find myself worrying about things like, you know, a legacy of integrity and generosity and all the rest of it. Money affects us all. Mark Twain, that great wit, said, all money is tainted. Taint yours, taint mine. (laughs) Uh, That isn't the biblical view. The Bible does Sometimes people say, Uh, You know, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil, and that's a misquote. The actual quote in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, the love of money is the root of all evil. The the, the Bible's pragmatic about money, it just talks about it. 
It doesn't say it's intrinsically bad or intrinsically good, but it says that our relationship with money is vitally important because you get this wrong, it is the root, the doorway of all evil. Conversely, get your relationship with money right and you'll probably begin to get everything else right too. Uh, Money and wealth are not wrong. In fact, they can be a sign of God's blessing. I'm saying that carefully. Uh, but but, but we, uh, in this church, we have many people who are wealthy and are extraordinarily generous. But whether you have a lot of money or not enough money, your relationship with money is really important. The Bible says this is ultimately a heart issue. That's important because I don't know about you, but I find it is so easy to fall into fear, uh, into a sort of sense there's never going to be enough, a penny-pinching, greedy attitude when it comes to money. Now, I like uh, eating at Harvester restaurants. Uh, Do I have any fellow Harvester restaurants? appreciators, uh, six of us, we, we should get together around one of those round tables and have a salad together. And, um, and the, the great thing with harvesters is a few years ago, they, they had this thing that was so radical at the time, I don't know why, but I remember getting so excited about it, which was, you could go and get a salad bowl from the salad bar, and you could just fill that bowl, and it was free, you know, and... and uh, we, we, uh, this became a, an architectural challenge for me. You'd get the cucumber, that was the key. And if you lined, because the, they were stupid little small bowls as well. They were, they were being generous, but not really. And uh, you put the cucumber around the edge. And if you did a double thickness, you could double the height of the bowl in order to fill it with more salad. You learn a lot of things here at Emmaus. Eventually, some senior executive at Harvester looked and said, this is absolute nonsense. It's only a bunch of cucumber and carrots. If this is our business model, we're in deep trouble. And they had this crazy idea, probably nicked from those wonderful Americans. Why don't we just do all you can eat at the salad bar? I expect they had weeks discussing it. But now, people, you don't have to stack the cucumber up around the edge of the bowl. You can just go and keep filling that bowl with salad. <laughs> I genuinely think that as Christians, we tend to think that God is a single bowl of blessing kind of a God. I'll give you some stuff, but you're going to have to stack the cucumber around the edge. (laughs) Try and make the most of it, people. And the Bible says really clearly we have an all-you-can-eat God that he is abundant, that he is generous, that he is lavish. Look at the extravagance of his imagination in creation. I mean, it's ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) just just go for a walk in the countryside. He made stuff he didn't have to make. You know, I'm going to make lots of types of trees. I'm going to plant orchids high in the Himalayas that no one will ever see. I'm going to put weird... I'm going to invent a duckbill platypus. You've been drinking a lot of coffee again. Coffee, great idea. Like There's just this unbelievable extravagance in creation. And we experience that abundance in our own lives. Be honest with me. 
I know we all have troubles. I know we all have challenges. But begin to count your blessings and you're going to go on for a long time because we are blessed. Look at the extravagance of God's love in our lives. And the ultimate extravagance, the ultimate generosity, of course, is God giving his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the most famous verse in the Bible says. John 3, verse 16. God so, so loved the world. He so loved you. That he, what do you do when you love? He gave. That's Love makes you want to give, right? <laughs> if I go to Sammy and say, I am now your husband, and on this day of the month, every year, I have programmed myself to give you a bunch of flowers. I got 10% off at BP. It doesn't have the same effect as if I just go, oh, darling, I, I, I don't know how to express the depths of my passion and love for you, but here's some chrysanthemums. <laughs> I learned quickly that those don't count, apparently. Uh, so complicated. So... Um, Love gives. God so loved you that he gave. And he didn't just give you, you know, a five oh you go, son. He gave himself. He gave his own son. Don't you, one of the reasons you, you can't have a low self-image as a Christian is because when we begin to understand that God thought you and I were more valuable than his own son, he gave his own son in place of us. It makes you walk a little taller. I was worth Jesus Christ. You've been saved. You've been bought at a price. So we have a lavish God, and this is important because we all struggle with fear when it comes to money, and we must resolve this heart issue before we look at the practicalities, that God is generous, the world is abundant, and he is going to provide for you because he loves you. He's not a single salad bowl God. He's all you can eat. Now, I want to sort of ask your permission to be challenging, and I tell you why. Is I've, I've done my homework for this talk, and I've read the words of Jesus, much more than we're going to cover in this talk. And Jesus is relentlessly, incredibly practical and massively challenging when it comes to money. And I'm tempted to, let's do a few funny stories and vaguely make some points, but it's just not true to Jesus. If he was standing here talking to you about money, he's going to roll up his sleeves and say, okay, you've asked for it, so I'm going to do that. Please don't be offended. I'm just really trying to be true to what I read in the Bible. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, and then verse 24. This is the passage entitled, Treasures in Heaven. Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. There your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is such a stark choice that Jesus gives us. You have a choice. You can worship money. Or you can worship God. 
but you cannot do both. Make your choice. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever dominates your thinking is what you really worship. Whatever fills your mind instinctively in the middle of the night, first in the morning, is probably what you're most focused on deep down. Our real beliefs in life are not found in our Bibles, but they are found if I was how do we get this right so I know that's our heart I know that's your desire, it's my desire. Lives in a very materialistic age. How on earth do we get our... I want to give you, uh, very quickly, four very practical... ...is this. Deal... than addressing this at, in this September, the start of this new act. Way out of it. And I know there's a voice can't get out of it. You can. There is hope. And please don't put money in the offering. We're not the kind of church that goes, well, you just got to like sow into the offering and it will miraculously deal with you. Spend our resources trying to help. Got to help you get out of debt. So that's the first thing. Deal with debt. Sixty-two percent of people in this country levels. The average unsecured borrowing is fourteen thousand pounds. The second key is this, be content, learn to be content. This doesn't sound very rock and roll, but I want to suggest it is one of the most revolutionary and radical things that anybody can do in our, our I, I don't need more stuff to stick two fingers up at the adverts. You see apparently 4,000 adverts a day and we is multi-millionaire, multinational corporations with the audacity to spend their money and their imagination telling you that who you are is not enough and that you'll be happier with their stupid products. You don't need a new pair of jeans to be more attractive. You're going to be ugly forever. (laughs) 
Be content. There's this meme going around. It's called, I hope none of you see it. It's called Sneakers, the Preachers with Sneakers. It's, really, it's like famous preachers, and there are photographs of their trainers, and, and, and then it says how much they cost. Some of these guys, are, like their trainers are worth thousands. And so I, I had this really weird thing. Part of me thought, uh, I'm glad I'm not on that. And then part of me thought, why haven't I got trainers that good? I said, literally, I said to my boys, I said, can these, could, I, could I get on preachers with sneakers? And they said, Dad, everyone knows that those are 35 pounds. You, you know, you're not making it. Learn to be content. 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 6, says this, Godliness with contentment is great gain. That means it's possible to be godly, by the way, and not content. Especially in Guildford. Godliness with contentment. Add to your worship contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich, says Paul, fall into temptation. Don't make that your aim, your aspiration. It's a trap, he says. It will lead you into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Jeffrey Epstein. Harvey Weinstein. And this isn't just for the rich. I confess to you there have probably been weeks in my life when I've read the Ikea catalogue more than the Bible. Store up treasures in heaven. What are you worshipping? Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you want peace of mind, learn the art of contentment. Does contentment mean that you can't have ambition? No. It means delaying gratification and enjoying what you have right now whilst you aspire to have more in the future. It's about process as well as attitude. Slow down. Be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Learn to live by the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4. He says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty one, with plenty of time, uh, uh, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Three, I've said deal with debt. I've said be content. Three, live to give. Jesus says store up treasures in heaven. It's the ultimate insider trading tip. there's a phenomenal return on investment once you're dead. Store up treasures in heaven. John Wesley famously said, gain all of money, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So so some people want to be very generous and give all they can, but they never try and get any money and they don't ever save it. Listen, it's important to steward your resources well. Get Money, that's not wrong. I've said, don't worship it, but get it. Save it. Be wise and shrewd with that. And then 
give it. Be generous. And that is such fun. We, get, we have such fun. Giving here at church is such fun. It, like, we're seeing lives changed. I mean, when I see someone like, say, Steve, I don't know if Steve's here today, you know, who, who's very open about the fact he was addicted to heroin and, and, and now he knows Jesus and he's set free. And it's like he hasn't stopped smiling for two years. And when I watch Steve taking communion, I'm often, you often see me, I'm just there weeping. I, can I suggest that's better than a new pair of jeans? Like we get to give our money. We're on such an adventure together, changing lives, planting churches, defying a culture that says that Jesus is relevant and the church is dead. And instead we're growing and people are getting saved and we get to all give our little bit towards that. And together we're seeing something amazing and wonderful happening, not in some other part of the world, not at some other time in history, but here of all places in our postcode through idiots like us, we're doing something with our little... Our a little mustard seeds, a great tree is growing. It's fun. But if you're going to give all you can, you've got to get all you can. You've got to save all you can. That's good advice from John Wesley. How do we do that? Well, there's some really practical advice uh, in the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 16. And if you listen carefully, you'll find out this was advice the Apostle Paul gave on giving, not just to the Corinthian church, but to presumably all the churches under his care. Listen. He says, uh, now, about the collection for the Lord's people. So they were taking up an offering for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So this is his standard advice, okay? On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. This is really, really practical advice on giving. At church. Nicky Gumbel brings four practical keys out of these two verses. The first thing is he says, notice it is primarily for God's people. That's verse one. It is an offering for the Lord's people. That is the church. And Sam and I give to other things, not just to the church, but we always try and make sure that our primary giving is to the church, partly because this is family. There are lots of other brilliant and worthy and important things. But this is family. Family comes first. And also because the church is such a good return on investment because we are mostly volunteers, whereas most charities have to pay all their stuff. And thirdly, there's a sense that this is part of our worship. We don't want to sing songs. We want to give money, but we do give to other things as well. The second thing in these two verses is uh, the Apostle Paul is clear that our giving should be systematic and regular. He says, on the first day of every week, give. And so they didn't have direct debits and standing orders and things back then, but, but I'm sure if he was writing today, he would put it in those terms, set up a standing order. One of the wonderful things in this church, 18 months ago, only 27% of the households in this church were giving regularly through direct debits and stuff. And, and I talked honestly about that. We did some teaching around it, and you responded unbelievably. And that systematically grew so that by six months ago, we had 50% of the church giving regularly, 50% of the households, which is stunning. Thank you. It still means that half the church isn't, but it's still the most amazing response, and we're so grateful. Because the church has continued to grow, it's actually dropped back a bit. And one or two people have had to stop giving regularly, which we understand. But we've gone back to about 46% of the households giving regularly. Can I gently invite you, if you're not giving in a, a, a disciplined way, uh, to, to think about that. Maybe talk to your partner over the coming week and, and maybe fill out a form. 
Uh, I know some people just say, oh, I've been meaning to do that. I just didn't want you to mention it. Uh, can I just encourage you, not just, you know, for here, but this is the Apostle Paul saying we should do it. Thirdly, everyone should be giving. He says, each one of you should be involved, should give. And then finally, we see in this passage, it should be proportionate to our income. The Apostle Paul says that you should give in keeping with your income. Deuteronomy 16, verse 17 says, Each of you must bring a gift to God in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. And so for some people, 10% is a crazy amount of money because that's you know, the Old Testament guideline. And some people, it's, it, 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 it's actually not that much because they've got lots of disposable income. But that is the biblical uh, uh, sort of guideline that uh, 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 something proportionate to your income might be considering a tithe, 10%. This is a principle that goes right back to Genesis chapter 14 and Abraham, who started giving 10% back to God because God was blessing him so much. And if you think about it, this wasn't the time of Excel spreadsheets and calculators. So why, where did he come with, up with 10%? I've worked it out. I didn't read this, but I worked this out all by myself. It was this. Abraham had two hands with ten fingers. And he must have been staring and going, everything in my hands is from God. How do I show God that I'm grateful? I'll give him one, one finger out of the ten. And so we have this great, you know, the tithe. But I reckon it just started with, I'll give one finger back to God out of the ten he's given me. Everything we have is God's. Let's give back to him. Now, I know for some people that's maybe not possible or practical. Uh, if you're in debt, I've said you shouldn't be giving. Uh, we want to help you get out of that. But Sam and I have always found that really helpful. In Old Testament times, it was a bottom line. You give 10%. It was a law. But we're in New Testament times. Hallelujah. And so it's no longer a bottom line. It's a guideline. And I find guidelines helpful. Because I'm basically selfish, but I'm also quite practical. And so Sammy and I, actually, we're, we're really disciplined, making sure we're giving at least 10%. And every year we try and put it up a little bit. Can I encourage you to think seriously about that? If those who aren't giving regularly were to start doing so in this church, and if those who are giving could move towards 10%, we would have absolutely no financial problems. Uh, in fact, we would be able to do so much more than we are currently doing. R.T. Kendall says that actually if the church, two billion of us, practice tithing around the world, we could supplant governments in terms of our ability to fight injustice, uh, obliterate poverty, you know, uh, restore, uh, restore the environment. We could, we could commission massive research on things that no company's interested in doing, but the kingdom of God's interested in doing. We could do all sorts of stuff if the church in the world just actually took this guideline seriously of 10%. And so I don't want to be heavy on you. This isn't the bottom line, but if you find a guideline helpful, then...